Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and I'm so excited to say that the floodgates are now open to buy tickets for Sasta 2018, and if for some bizarre reason you'd like to have many mojitos with me at Sasta Annual, you now can, and not only that, but you get a whopping 10% off when you use the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, yes, that's DRINKSWITHHARRY for free mojitos with me and 10% off the ticket price. I know, a lot of excitement to start the show, but that's just the beginning, as today we welcome a master of industry to the show today. This was probably one of my favourite interviews to record, and I'm thrilled to welcome Dave Kellogg to the show today. Now, Dave is the CEO at Host Analytics, the leader in cloud-based enterprise performance management. Previously, Dave was GM of Service Cloud at Salesforce and CEO at unstructured big data provider Mark Logic. Before that, Dave was CMO at Business Objects for nearly a decade, as the company grew from $30 million to over $1 billion. If that wasn't enough, Dave's also worked in various capacities with the likes of Breeze, Gainsight, Tableau, and MongoDB. And previously sat on the boards of ag tech leader Granular, acquired by DuPont for $300 million, and big data leader Astadata, acquired by Teradata for $325 million. I'd also have to say a huge thank you to the one and only Jason Lemkin for the intro to Dave today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Honeyfund, the number one online wedding gift registry, making it super easy to give and receive that perfect wedding gift to date supporting roughly $500 million of giving. And don't think Honey Fund is just for dishes and slow cookers, but it's also great for raising money for honeymoons, down payments, and charitable giving. Learn more at honeyfund.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Honey Fund did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got a really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Get it at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. Who knows, work with WePay and you could even be featured here in a future profile. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Dave Kellogg, CEO at Host Analytics. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Dave, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Big fan of your blog and a big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here, Harry. I'd love to get started though today with a little bit about you and how you initially made your way into the world of SaaS and then came to be CEO at Host Analytics. Sure. Well, I found my way into SaaS via Salesforce.com, where I worked running the general manager and senior vice president of uh, Service Cloud, the customer service applications. And after doing a relatively brief stint there, I wanted to run my own SaaS company, and I found Host Analytics. So I joined on just about five years ago. Prior to Salesforce, I had spent most of my career in on-premises software. So I run a company called MarkLogic for six years as we grew from zero to $80 million run rate. And then I'd been chief marketing officer at Business Objects, where we had a really epic growth from 30 million in revenue to over a billion during my nine years there. So, But after having that success in on-prem and after having been an early buyer of SaaS, I actually purchased Salesforce.com for my own use in 2003 when I was at Business Objects. I was a big believer in the business model and I wanted to run a SaaS company. So you'll see, you saw the scaling of Business Objects and Salesforce through truly transformational periods there. What were the big takeaways that you took with you to your founding and kind of creation of Host Analytics? Yeah, I mean, in terms of scaling, I think that the biggest thing that that people need to understand as you scale a company, and this was very true at Business Objects, is is that just getting to keep your job next year was something of an honor. And in fact, during the nine years I spent at Business Objects, it was only myself and one other guy who who lasted that time frame. Because the fact of the matter is the company grows, it gets more complex, the organization gets bigger, and, and a lot of people are always trying to kind of move up. And moving up is great, but when you're already on the executive staff, there kind of is no up. And the question is, can you actually hang on. And you need to be planning ahead and thinking ahead and and, and 
of particular importance bringing in great people underneath you in, in order to survive as the company scales. So to me, the biggest challenge in scaling is, is about growing with the organization and making sure your team is able to support you so you can effectively keep your job as a company goes from $30 million to $60 million to $300 million to, to a billion. Speaking of those growing revenues and growth in general for SaaS startups, uh, we all love in SaaS uh, metrics, obviously the one thing we can all agree on. Uh, so I want to discuss metrics and, and what you believe to be the truly defining metrics that can have a transformational impact on companies compared to the plethora that are kind of out there and constantly discussed in public. Yeah, it's, it's easy to drown in SaaS metrics because there's so many different things to measure. And I developed a passion for this subject when I joined Host Analytics because a big reason is if you want to raise money, the venture capitalists are all obviously very into SaaS metrics. So this, this is an area I'm passionate about and have spent a lot of time in. And, and if you only gave me one, and I like to be reductionist, you know, if you, if you only got one metric, what would it be? And to me, I would actually pick LTV to CAC, i.e. the lifetime value of a customer divided by the cost of acquiring a customer. Because with just that one metric alone, you can figure out if the economics of a business are going to work, right? You, you may have a great LTV to CAC and not be growing, but maybe that's because you don't have enough cash and you can't afford to go acquire more customers, right? But, but if fundamentally, when you think about LTV and CAC, CAC is what you pay to get something and LTV is what it's worth. Uh, and to me, fundamentally, if you had just one thing, I want to know how much am I paying to get a new customer? And then once I get them, how much are they worth to me over their lifetime? And just knowing that ratio of those two numbers can tell you an enormous amount about a SaaS business. Can I ask, have you always believed this in the power of LTV to CAC or did you used to hold uh, differing or kind of more pluralist beliefs in, in metrics? Well, you know, uh, having spent a lot of time at public companies as well, a lot of these metrics aren't available. So uh, when you're looking at a public SaaS company, you're looking at things like billings growth. I, I think that would be the number one thing most public company investors would look at because it, it's, it's actually quite hard. I'd say actually borderline impossible to get LTV to CAC off public company financials. So I think some of the metrics, it really depends on the perspective you're coming from. But in a private company, venture capital-backed startup context where all the numbers are available, it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that you wanted to somehow balance these two variables. Because if you're just looking at customer acquisition costs, well, gosh, say I'm really effective at acquiring customers, but none of them renew. Well, that's a terrible business, right? So, so Or say if I get a customer, you know, I keep him for seven years. Well, that's great. But what if it costs me you know, 10 times my money to acquire one? Well, that's a terrible business. So it, it, it kind of became clear to me in the first year or two these one-dimensional looks were, were not healthy and you needed to balance what you pay for something versus what it's actually worth. Can I ask, what is a great balance in terms of the LTV's cat ratio? Is it the often hailed three to one? How do you view the, the kind of best and most realistic outcome in terms of this ratio? Sure. I mean, a couple of things. One, as you're right, the rule of thumb is definitely three. Uh, you know, the higher, the better, quite frankly. Five is better than three. Seven is better than five. But for me, you know, three is kind of de minimis, right? If you're, if you're not three, there's going to be a problem because it means you're not getting three times what you're paying for a customer. And remember, you have lots of operating expenses you need to cover, like sales and marketing and R&D. You have the cost of running the service, i.e. cost of goods sold. So there are a lot of expenses you need to cover. It's not just 
good enough to get your money back uh, on a customer. You, you need to get more than your money so you can pay to run the business. So three is the rule of thumb. Five is better than three. You know, a lot of people will criticize this ratio because they argue that if they have negative churn, then you can't calculate it because they'll say, well, if I have negative churn, my lifetime value is infinite. And, and I think that is, it, it depends a lot on which churn rate you pick. But I, I think in general, it's a bit of a cop out. You, you can find a good representative churn rate. There's about seven to choose from, which isn't always going to be positive, even if you are expanding your base to give you some sense uh, for the customer value. Because in reality, it's not going to be infinite. So, so, so let's let's actually look at our numbers and figure out which churn ratio is the right one to invert to get that lifetime value. Which churn ratio do you use personally with host analytics and why? I use what's called simple churn, which I think is the best mathematically at, at valuing the annuity of a SaaS business, right? What makes a SaaS business worth so much is that it's an annuity. It comes back every year. And there's a lot of moving parts in churn. You know, some people like to look at logo churn and say, you know, if uh, of 100 customers, how many chose to keep doing business with you? And that's a reasonable metric for customer satisfaction, quote unquote. Okay, if you take 100 customers, how many want to keep doing business with us? Unweighted by ARR, right? One man, one vote, as they say. And it's a good metric. But personally, if you want to look at customer satisfaction, I'd rather look at net promoter score because there is a loose coupling between renewal and customer satisfaction, right? Not all unhappy customers discontinue the service, right? We've had cases where you get a new CFO and it's a happy customer, but the new CFO wants to use Hyperion because he's always used Hyperion and and we get turned off. And that was a happy customer that discontinued. And and by the way, the corollary, you can find people who aren't terribly happy, but feel it's still in their best interest to keep working forward with you. So I don't equate renewal to satisfaction. I think there's a, a loose coupling. But for LTVD CAC purposes, I like to use simple churn, which is just net change in ARR from existing customers divided by starting period ARR. Mm -hmm. And and that really tells you in aggregate how the annuity's value is changing. Jason Lemkin asks a very poignant question. What's more important, logos or expansion? And what goals should you give your team around each? Sure. You know, I mean, they're they're obviously both really important. The theory is that it's easier to sell an existing customer than a new one. So that's what makes expansion so important because it comes with a lower acquisition cost. So I believe a good SaaS company, a mid-stage startup, should have somewhere between 20 and 30% of its ARR coming from existing customers. Uh Your numbers may vary, but that's my rule of thumb there. And and then logo acquisition is important because it's possible if you've targeted a very small market or some vertical that you've actually started to run out of people to sell to, and you certainly don't want expansion to be your only opportunity. So uh, I believe a healthy SaaS business is actually kind of chewing gum and walking at the same time, right? They're they're acquiring new customers and expanding existing customers uh, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. I'm very intrigued. How do you view the balance between upsell and cross-sell? Sure. And I, I tend to use those terms synonymously, which is a little sloppy on my part because I do believe they're different. To me, upsell is about, say, additions, right? We have a group edition and a corporate edition and an enterprise edition. And moving up from one edition to the other, I would consider to be an upsell. I would consider driving additional seats of an existing product to be upsell. Some people don't. They, they may use a different word for that. Um, cross-sell to me is really if you buy product one and I sell you product two. So like at Host Analytics, we sell planning and budgeting on the one hand and we sell consolidation on the other and if i sell a consolidation customer planning or a planning customer consolidation that's a true cross sell in my mind so and and they're both valid ways of getting incremental arr and i think the most important thing is that you know all this begins with your product strategy and if you've only built one edition and one product you're gonna have a lot of trouble upselling anything so so you need to think about this at you know kind of product design time what do we want our upsell opportunity to be where do we want to draw the line on these 
additions. By the way, additions is something I learned really well at Salesforce. They, they just do a great job. What, what do they do so well with additions? They just have designed them very carefully so that they that customers need to, as a customer grows, they need to and want to go from the lower to the more powerful addition. They, they provide a lot of incentive uh, and the price gets quite a bit steeper. So if you really are tight on budget and you need just core SFA functionality, you can buy Salesforce for a reasonable price. But on the other hand, if you're a big enterprise and you need the broad suite, the enterprise edition or the unlimited edition it can actually get quite expensive. So, so it gives you an ability to kind of match a customer's budget to their needs. I have to ask, David Skok, we spoke about upsell and cross-sell there. David Skok said on the show, uh, all great SaaS companies have at least one variable pricing axis. I'm intrigued. Do you agree with this thesis? Yes, I do. I mean, you want to, in general, hook yourself to something that grows, right? So that should be your variable access. And this goes all the way back to, gosh, even the 1980s when IBM sold mainframe software, they priced it by the MIP, by how fast the processor was, the million instruction per second. Um, and it was a great thing to hook to because it always grows, right? Because processors are getting faster with Moore's Law. You know, I think Salesforce is a great model where it's hooked to users and, and Salesforce's typically grow. You know, host analytics is a little tougher because we sell to corporate finance departments, uh, and they kind of grow logarithmically relative to the business. So we have a fixed component plus a variable component in our pricing model. But but yeah, I think you, you most SaaS companies need at least one, I might even argue two, kind of addition as one variable, and then seat count as another. Going forward, we may in fact see usage as, as another dimension, But because most SaaS companies today are really not usage-based. They're still kind of person-based or capabilities-based. So talk to me about usage, because I have a big problem with it in terms of disincentivizing users to use it as much as they potentially would do with the tiered pricing as you use more, obviously. How do you evaluate that in terms of not discouraging customers from really optimizing the product? Yeah, exactly right. That's why we've not moved to usage. It's something we talk about because we see some vendors going there and some customers like the idea because you're kind of only paying for what you use, right? It's not like the gym membership where you pay hundred bucks a month, regardless of whether you go to the gym. But then again, uh, the problem is, you know, once you're in the gym, I don't want to encourage you not to stay. So we have avoided usage-based pricing for that reason because it disincents usage. I'd rather sell somebody a seat, get them to use the system and get them to want more, right? Get them to want to buy additional capability mm. as part of a land and expand strategy. So it's a good point. I think usage-based pricing flies a little bit in the face of land and expand. We recently had Oren Hoffman on the show and he said that it's actually in non-competitive markets that you need to, to be very aggressive in terms of your pricing and be, be much on the lower side and underpriced. And he said this because then you will deter any income, any uh, kind of startups from entering the industry. To what extent do you agree with that thesis? Yeah, so I think competitive signaling is a very powerful mechanism, and, and if somebody has the ability to kind of price you out as a new entrant, uh, you, you should pay attention to it. Now, uh, on the flip side, there's enough venture capital out there that uh, it all depends on which market you're chasing, but there are plenty of VCs, if they think there's a great opportunity, will give you enough capital to kind of survive a potential pricing battle like that. So to me, it's not black and white, but certainly uh, you need to factor it into your math, because if you're going to have to really lose money for a long time fighting against somebody who can subsidize those losses, it's going to require a lot of capital. I, I do have to touch on, before we move into a quick fire round, one that many founders love talking to me about, bookings. So how do you look to analyze bookings versus ARR as a SaaS metric? Yeah, this is a great question, you know, because in addition to being CEO of Host, uh, I sit on a few boards and I've sat on boards in the past. So, so I get to watch, you know, the SaaS company, both from the CEO chair as well as the board member chair. And way too many SaaS companies start with talking about bookings. And I think for most VCs, you know, bookings is kind of 
a four-letter word, right? Like, I don't want to hear about bookings. To me, the, the first four lines of any SaaS company's financials should be what I call the leaky bucket. Starting ARR plus new ARR bookings minus churn ARR equals ending ARR, right? If you, if you, if you show me that leaky bucket and you show me actual plan and year over year, I'm going to know an enormous amount about your business. And, and to do all that, the word bookings never came up, right? The problem with bookings is it, it's not well-defined and it's easily manipulatable. You know, some companies love to talk about uh, bookings as TCV. So we sign a seven-year deal where you're paying year one up front. The other years are paid in, you know, years two through seven, uh, respectively. And, and if it's a hundred-unit deal, you know, what is that? Well, it's a hundred units of ARR, but it's technically 700 units of TCV. Now, will the company ever collect those units or, or what time period is associated with the collection? That makes things complicated. So, but you can easily kind of inflate your size by talking about TCV. And I think it's a very dangerous metric for, for, for a bunch of reasons, not limited to the fact that if you don't make that customer successful, you are not going to collect years three, four, five, six, and seven. So it's kind of a phantom booking that, that especially for a new startup where you're not sure about their ability to make someone successful, to, to count TCV is presumptuous. You know, at Salesforce.com, if they do a seven-year deal, that TCV is probably pretty meaningful, right? They're going to collect that $20 million a year for seven years. You can be quite assured of it. But, but for a new startup, to me, it's just a way to kind of inflate the size of your business. The other problem is it can create a bit of a kind of drug addiction problem with cash because the other temptation is to say, hmm, if it's 100 bucks a year, I'll sell you a five-year deal and I'll sell it to you for two or 300. And so I've given a massive discount, right? I'm collecting two or 300 instead of 500, so almost half off to get the multi-year contract. That, that feels really good the day you do it because you get you know two to 300 units of cash, but, but then you collect nothing from that customer for five years. It, it's kind of like recreating on-prem in SaaS. Right, where, where you right, you've taken a SaaS model and made it effectively non-recurring or recurring at a five-year frequency. There's a bunch of problems with it, and yeah, you know, beware of Greeks bearing gifts, and beware of SaaS companies talking about bookings. It's it's rarely a good thing. Okay, so so on that, you mentioned multi-year. There, I'm intrigued. How do you evaluate? Uh, let's start with billing frequency. Sure, you know, if you go back to the early early days of Salesforce, they actually tried to do monthly billing, right? And even today, Salesforce's pricing is stated per user per month. They, they don't do monthly billing anymore. They rarely do quarterly billing. I think the whole industry is in general trended towards annual billing. I would say certainly for enterprise SaaS, annual billing is the norm. It, it does bring up the topic of multi-year contracts because some SaaS companies will do a one, two, or three-year deal. At, at Host Analytics, we have a bimodal distribution of one and three-year deals. But the issue is with us, we will, if we're going to do a three-year deal, we'll give you a discount in exchange for the three-year promise, but we want the cash up front in return. Because my belief on multi-year deals without prepayments, they look a lot like renewals to me. They look like renewals that are being done by the finance department as opposed to the customer success department. But somebody's having to call in year two and year three and ask for money. And if the customer's not happy, you may not get it. So my belief is if you do a non-prepaid multi-year deal, you're kind of giving, right? You're giving a salesperson more commission because it's notionally a bigger deal. You're giving the customer a discount in exchange for the multi-year commitment, but you're not really getting much because if the customer is happy, they were going to renew anyway. And if they're unhappy, they probably aren't going to pay you. So 
I have a problem with those. I don't think they're a good idea. But, but, and by the way, people who do those deals are people who count TCV because the only thing it's good for is TCV. Can I ask a question? Does paying up front not remove accountability from the service provider in terms of ensuring the high quality service and the kind of customer retention throughout the life cycle of the contract? Yeah, does it misalign vendor? Does it misalign vendor customer interest? Right, it's a good question. And certainly, having spent my my career in on-premises software, you know, I've seen firsthand the, the non-alignment. One of my my favorite anecdotes was a business objects. We sold a large telecom company more licenses than they had employees. Right, and everyone was cheering. <laughs> we like, sold a thirty five Iranian electoral vote. <laughs> Very much so. We we literally sold forty thousand seats to a thirty five thousand person company, and you know that that's non aligned vendor customer interest. Does a prepayment do that? Uh, yes and no, right? It depends how long it is. I'm not a big fan of deals any longer than three years. If you're doing a two year prepayment for a discount or a three year prepayment, I think it's a potentially a win win. Let me explain why. Which is, I think it's a win for the vendor whenever you give a discount less than your churn rate. So what does that mean? If you have a ten percent churn rate and you're a hundred unit customer. If you want up to a 10% discount for paying year two in advance, mathematically, I'm winning. If I give you a 5% discount, I'm winning because I'm beating my churn rate. You're winning because of the time value of money. So, so, and to me, it doesn't misalign. I still am going to need your business to renew at the end of that contract, right? Maybe if it's five years, 10 years, people stop caring, right? Because as the length of the contract kind of approaches management's perception of infinity, no one cares anymore. But but two or three years, you know you're going to want that renewal. So, so I don't think it misaligns at all. Question before we move into the quick fire. Should customer success be involved in the renewal process and upselling? Yes. This is a, you know, this is a big controversy, partly because the question then quickly leads to double compensation. Oh, wait a minute. Are you paying sales on the upsell or you're paying customer success on the upsell or God forbid, are you paying both? And my, my belief is actually, yes, customer success should run the renewal. They should run what I call incidental upsell. So price increases, extra seats, kind of fries with your burger cross-sells if your product line has those, so kind of easy cross-sells. But you definitely need sales inside. For, for example, at our company, planning is sold to the vice president of FP&A and consolidation is sold to the controller. That's not an easy cross-sell. It's actually a different buyer. Uh, same company, but different buyer. So at that point, we definitely bring in sales and CFL or the customer success team kind of becomes, a, if you will, the, the lead gen department. They say, hey, we found one, but this is a real sales cycle. It's a different buyer. They're evaluating three other products. You you clearly don't want to put your CFL person, you know, I say CFL, which is Salesforce Terminal Energy Customers for Life, you don't want to put your customer success person up against another guy's enterprise rep, right? You don't want to put your farmer against someone else's hunter. So that's the other way to look at it, is look at it from a deal perspective and like, who, who are you selling against? Put farmer versus farmer, put hunter versus hunter. You said there about the changing personas to sell to. How important is the internal champion within the sales cycle when you're selling to a, van- when you're selling to a customer? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely critical that you have a strong champion. And and one of the the biggest indicators of churn or a leading indicator of churn is loss of that champion. If that champion gets a new job or moves on to another company, it gets transferred to a different division and and new management comes in, that is, in my estimation, for most SaaS companies, a real risk. So it's important. We we, we try to build not only one, but several champions to have some redundancy built into the system. And they can obviously help cross-sell when you're switching buyers, right? All of our sales are to the finance department. So everyone works for the CFO, but we are selling to very different branches. And it's great to be able to have the, the planning guys say, look, we're really happy with host analytics. We'd recommend them for consolidation and, and or vice versa. Can I ask, how do you
you engage in a post-mortem on churn? Obviously, like, say, losing your champion is a, is a regrettable form. How do you look to kind of really evaluate that post-mortem? Yeah, a couple things. First, one of my big beliefs is you can't analyze churn by analyzing churn. Too many people sit down uh, and they, they, they take, okay, give me a list of everybody who churned last quarter and let's look for patterns. And that's actually completely logically flawed. I can't remember the name of the uh, the fallacy, but, but think about it for a minute. If you're only analyzing people who are churned, you've got nothing to compare them to. What you want to do is take 10 guys who churned and compare them to 10 people who didn't churn and then look for patterns, right? Look for what actually predicts churn happening. So, so my first thing is don't analyze churn by getting a spreadsheet with a list of all the people who churn. That will tell you almost nothing. The best way to analyze churn is to get on the phone, in my opinion, and call people because sometimes you have very happy customers churning because they have new management or because they got acquired and the new owner said you have to use a different system. Sometimes you have unhappy people renewing, right? So, so the best thing you can do in analyzing churn is get on the phone and say, hey, you know, thank you for being a customer for the past year or two. We really want to understand what went wrong. So, so I'm a big believer in live debriefing of churn. And then the second thing I think you need is a standard taxonomy of churn where most churn has more than one reason, right? I'll give you an example. Say you lose your executive sponsor. So the CFO quits and they bring in a new CFO. But say the customer was only quasi-happy. Well, what's the cause of the churn there? Is it executive management change or is it you know product satisfaction? And the answer is both, right? Because had the customer been ecstatic with the product and the new CFO showed up and said, how's this going? If everybody said, it's amazing, you probably wouldn't have had the churn. If everybody shows up and goes, eh, it's kind of mediocre, then the churn is at risk. So I'm a big believer in, in establishing primary and secondary reasons for churn and then for building a standard taxonomy. Like the top of our taxonomy is, is product-driven versus corporate-driven. Did it have something to do with the product or did it have something to do with the company? Was it new management? Was it loss of sponsor? Was it budget cuts? Was it bankruptcy? Was it acquisition? Right, All the different things that can happen on the company side and on the product side. Was it lack of functionality? Was it was it a failed implementation? Was it performance? Uh, there's a bunch of different things that can go wrong. So, But but unless you build a standard taxonomy, it's like sticking jello to a wall. Every meeting, you have a different way of bucketing and categorizing <laughs> churn. It's just too hard. I love that analogy. Uh, but I do want to dive into a quick fire round called the 60-second SASTA. So I say a short statement, and then you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds or less. How does that sound? Let's do it. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? SaaS metrics. That's why I got so passionate about them because I'd spent the vast majority of my career uh, in on-prem. I did a year at Salesforce where I started to get some exposure, but when I jumped into host analytics, I was immediately uh, immersed in the world of SaaS and SaaS metrics. So you, you can't know too much about SaaS metrics if you want to be a SaaS CEO. This is incredibly hard to do in 60 seconds, but let's try it. The role of marketing. Sure. Uh, as a former CMO, I've always believed that the role of marketing is to make sales easier. And if you start with that reductionist mission statement, you will, in my opinion, never go wrong because you have a lot of ways of making sales easier, right? You can bring new opportunities and leads. You can build great sales tools. You can do competitive analysis. You can do branding and awareness. There's lots of different ways you can help make the product easier by going to the product strategy group. There's lots of different things you can do. But if your North Star is we exist to make sales easier, you will rarely go wrong. How much ARR? should a good sales rep add 
in relation to comp? To me, the minimum is 4X. So when we set quotas, the lowest quota we'll set is four times your ARR goal. Obviously, five is better than four. I think the the, the averages range somewhere between four and six, Mm -hmm. but minimum four. Mm -hmm. The 90-day rule, what is it and what can you tell after 90 days? Yeah, yeah, I love this one because you'd be surprised how many new managers show up at a company and say, gosh, this team I've inherited isn't very good. And then 180 days later, it's all the same people. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. If it was a good team, then great. But you said it was a bad team, but they're not the other guy's team. They're your team. After 90 days, you own them, right? They're not someone else's clowns. They're your clowns. So you have to, (laughs) when you show up, you're going to own the team. You must be decisive. They're great people. Embrace them. If they're not, swap them out. But but don't complain about them and, and keep them. Can you be that uh, kind of bullish in, in your approach? Can it not destroy culture if you quite literally get rid of 10 people in, in a week? Yeah, I mean, hopefully the entire team is not uh, off. In my experience, it rarely is. There, there's normally a handful of people in any given team that, that need replacing. So I'm not a big believer in, in blowing up the whole thing. But if you get a team of 10 people and you think three of them are bad and, and you go on record saying that, you know, well, you have 90 days. So you mm-hmm. get in, assess it, make your call, and, and then, you know, ship up or ship out. Completely. <laughs> I do want to finish today. I'm moving out of the quick fire round by discussing uh, the future and more specifically planning and modeling the future. How would you advise prote- prospective founders to first view this and then to really engage with it? Sure. So there's a reason I joined a planning company is I'm actually very passionate about planning. Uh, it wasn't an accident. And I think the, the best thing you can do is build a driver-based model. And in the early days, you can build this in Excel. As you get bigger, you'll need a tool like Coast Analytics. But just build a driver-based model of your business. How many sales reps do you have? How much are they going to sell? What would their sales ramp look like? What's the, the ratio you want to have of sales reps to sales consultants? The ratio of sales reps to sales development reps? The ratio of reps to managers? Right, With a set of ratios and the core driver is the number of salespeople and their productivity, maybe by type, inside, outside. Right, It takes time, but if you build this model, and by the way, it's the first thing I did when I joined Host, is I built this exact model because I wanted to understand the business. Because, for example, one of the questions we had was this one versus three-year deal thing. And it was kind of a political issue where some board members said, well, three years bad, it misaligns customer interest. Some were like, three years good, it's good for cash. And I said, has anyone ever modeled this? Right? We have a lot of religion, but if we actually built a driver-based model and we had a variable being the contract duration. And just what, you know, we all know that the three-year deal gives you cash only once every three years, and the one-year deal gives you cash every year. But, but, but have we built a model? Have we seen the real impact? And to me, that's why, I mean, this is a slightly strange analogy, but I always view a driver-based model like prime factorization. If you want to understand the guts of a number, prime factorize it, and then you know the guts, right? There's this many twos, there's this many sevens, there's this, there's this many uh, fives in the number. Same thing with a driver-based model. And you figure out what levers matter. And typically, the SaaS business, it's salespeople, sales productivity, sales turnover, uh, sales ramping, and then there's a whole set of other assumptions about marketing, you know, the conversion rates along the funnel. How many MQLs turn into stage two opties, how many stage two opportunities get one, the opportunities that win, how big are they in ARR, and poof, out comes your quarterly ARR. So if you build this model, it will really help you and play with it. It helps you understand your business, and it'll help shorten a lot of board meetings, quite frankly. Well, I mean, how can you not end on such a positive thing as shortening board meetings? Uh, but, <laughs> but I do want to finish by saying, David, it's been such a pleasure. As I said, I've been a huge fan of the blog for a long time, uh, but I can't thank you enough for joining me today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you, Harry. I had a great time. 
I did tell you, Dave was a very, very special guest, and you can find his fantastic ramblings on kelblog.com, and you can follow him on Twitter, at kelblog. That really is a must. As I said, other than Sasta, it's always my go-to SAS blog. Likewise, we'd love to see you at Sasta Annual 2018, and you can join me for mojitos, I presume unlimited, given it's me, by do- typing the promo code Drinks with Harry when you purchase your tickets. That's Drinks with Harry. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in the world of SaaS, Honeyfund, the number one online wedding gift registry, making it super easy to give and receive that perfect wedding gift. To date, they've supported roughly $500 million of giving, and don't think Honeyfund is just for dishes and slow cookers. No, it's also great for raising money for honeymoons, down payments, and charitable giving. Learn more at honeyfund.com, and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Honeyfund did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. WePay's got a really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments, so you can find that at wepay.com forward slash sasta. And who knows, work with WePay and you could even be featured here in a future profile. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.